This episode is brought to you in part by Wholehearted Love, a new book by Caleb and Stephanie Rouse. Overcome the barriers that hold you back in your relationships with God and with others and delight in feeling safe, seen, and loved with Wholehearted Love. For more information, go to Tyndale.com. I'm your host, Erica Anderson, and I'm so excited today to be joined by Catherine Hayha. She Hayho, apologies. She is the political science endowed professor in public policy and public law at Texas Tech University and is going to be the chief scientist at nature.org. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I um I found your work um through Biologos. Um, and I was really fascinated by it. I've been working on some writing related to um, church and people that doubt and people that leave the church. And that's sort of how I got to Biologos because I, I was finding that science is an area there, that there's a lot of tension there when it comes to faith. And so I was actually, I had never heard of Biologos. And so I was, I was so excited to find their website and to find your work because I didn't realize that something like that actually already existed. Uh, so it was really cool and I kind of got dug into it. And so months ago I, I reached out to see, Hey, I would love to interview her. Um, and so I guess before we jump into all of that, I'd love if you could just share a little about yourself and what is the work of a climate scientist? What exactly do you do? Sure. So I grew up actually with a dad who was a science teacher and he was also a teacher in our local church. So I grew up with the idea that the Bible is God's written word and creation or nature is God's expressed word. And if we truly believe, which we all do as Christians, that the same God was responsible for both the Bible and the universe, then how could studying one possibly be in conflict with the other? Now, of course, there's sometimes when they might appear or seem to be in conflict, but that usually means that we humans, well, no, I would say it always means <laughs> that we humans are the ones at fault. So in some cases, our understanding of the science is incomplete or inadequate, and it evolves over time. And in many cases, we read the Bible with some very thick cultural lenses that cause us to misinterpret what the Bible says. And in fact, the Bible has been used in the past to argue that the earth is flat, or that the sun goes around the earth to argue things that we all know now and accept as facts are not true because God's expressed word, studying it through science has shown us that. So with a little humility and a little patience, sometimes these perceived conflicts can be worked out. And some of them we might not know the answer to until we get to heaven. But if we automatically assume that one or the other is completely wrong and has to be thrown out because we humans perceive a conflict, we are actually literally throwing out God's handiwork. And that is happening on both sides of the spectrum. So mm. growing up with this appreciation of science, um, one of my first memories actually is going to the park with my dad when I was about four years old, probably. And it seemed like it was two in the morning. It was probably like 10 o'clock at night. <laughs> Right. And I remember him, he, he loves astronomy. So I remember him teaching me how to find the Andromeda galaxy with binoculars. And that's really cool to think this is an entirely different galaxy separate than our own. And you can see it with your own eyes from this planet. 
So I was studying astrophysics in university, no surprise. And I was planning to continue to do that in graduate school because it's just really fascinating. There's always something new to discover. My dad always referred to the universe as God's art gallery. Um, and every time we have a more powerful telescope, we can see new things that we've never seen before. And they're always just absolutely incredible. So there I was almost finished my degree in astrophysics when I needed an extra course to finish my breadth requirements. And I looked around and there was this class on climate science over in the geography department. And growing up in Canada, I had always grown up with the idea that, you know, climate is changing and humans are responsible. And then we have other environmental issues like deforestation and biodiversity loss and air pollution. And environmentalists are the people who care about those things and the rest of us wish them well. That was sort of the impression I had. And I didn't, you know, not being an environmentalist, I was one of the people over here. So I took this class and it completely shocked me for two reasons. First of all, that's where I learned that studying the Earth's climate system is the exact same physics I've been learning in my astrophysics classes. But the second thing that really changed the trajectory of my entire life is when I realized that climate change is not only an environmental issue per se, climate change affects everything. And most of all, it affects the poorest and most vulnerable people, the people who've done the least to contribute to the problem. They're the ones who are suffering the biggest impacts. And we're not gonna be able to fix these issues like poverty and hunger, lack of access to clean water or basic education or basic healthcare. We can't fix these issues if we leave climate change out of the picture because climate change is like the hole in the bucket. So it's like you're pouring all of your money and all of your effort and all of your time. You're, you know, donating to World Vision. I grew up as a missionary kid myself in South America. You're doing everything you can to try to help with these vital issues. And you've got this hole that's getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And that's climate change. So that was what convinced me to do everything I could to help fix this problem. And so today, 25 years later, we're still working on it. Hopefully we're closer to getting something done than we were back then. But what I do specifically is I study what climate change means to people in the places where we live. So whether we are farmers in Texas, where I live now, or in Uzbekistan, whether we are um, state planners or city planners in Houston or in India, I work with people who need this information to plan for a very different future to make sure that we're going to be okay, that we're going to be safe as climate changes. And I also use this information to show why it's so important to slow down and eventually wean ourselves off the fossil fuels that are causing this problem. Because if we keep on going on our current pathway, we're not going to be able to adapt enough and we won't be safe. Can you explain a little more about exactly how climate change does affect the most vulnerable people? Absolutely. So what's happening is that by digging up and burning coal and gas and oil, we are wrapping an extra blanket of heat trapping gases around the planet that it doesn't need. And as a result, the planet is heating up. So that's why it's often called global warming. But mm -hmm. here's the thing. The average temperature of the planet measured by, you know, thousands of weather stations around the world, which is gradually ticking up decade by decade by decade. I don't know about you, but that's not something that my brain can process. I need big computers <laughs> to process that. So what we see is what I feel is more like global weirding. Hmm. We see that wherever we live, things are just getting weirder. So if you live out West, 
wildfires are something that's pretty normal. They happen all the time. If you live in the Gulf Coast, the Atlantic, you get hurricanes. If you live over in India or Africa or um, Asia, you get typhoons and cyclones there. It's the same type of storm. They just call it a different name over there. <laughs> um, if you live in the Midwest, you get flooding. We get heat waves in the summer. So all of this is normal. But what's happening is, is that climate change is loading the dice against us. So as the world heats up, we're seeing more frequent and stronger and deadly heat waves in the summer. We are seeing more heavy downpours and an increase in flooding. We're seeing that wildfires out west are burning more and more and more area. Like they just get crazy out of control now because it's just so dry and so hot. And we're seeing that hurricanes are getting bigger and stronger and they're dumping a lot more rain. So when disaster happens, who isn't able to get out of the way? people who are sick, people who are poor, people who are vulnerable. When homes are destroyed, who can rebuild? People who have insurance, people who have money. When crops are destroyed, who can buy food? People who have a nice hefty bank account and who don't count every penny. So what we're seeing is that climate change is not only affecting the poorest people the most here in North America, as well as on the other side of the world, but it's also increasing the gap between the richest and the poorest. In fact, they estimate that since 1960s, the gap between the richest and poorest countries in the world has increased by 25% thanks mm. to climate change. Oh my goodness. Wow. That's a stat I don't feel like a lot of people know. No. And then I know you didn't exactly ask this, but I think it's really important to mention this. <laughs> you know, yeah, go right ahead. Okay. So when we dig up and we burn coal and gas and oil, they produce these heat trapping gases carbon dioxide and methane that are building up in the atmosphere, wrapping this blanket around the planet. But they also produce air pollution. Air pollution is that smog that we see lying over big cities, you know, like LA or Salt Lake City or New Delhi. And when we breathe in those pollutants, it affects our lungs, it makes us sick. So for a long time, scientists have known that air pollution has a really significant impact on our health, but it wasn't until this year that they really put a reliable number on it. And this number is gonna shock you. It shocked me and I study this every day. <laughs> so it turns out that on average every year, air pollution from burning fossil fuels kills 8 million people. How, how does that, like from like lung disease and things? Lung disease, asthma, respiratory disease, it affects our hearts too. So just for comparison, currently we've seen about 2.5 million people die from COVID so far. Mm. And every premature death is a tragedy. I mean, mm -hmm. I know people who've lost their lives from COVID and you probably do too. Mm -hmm. But 8 million a year that we're not talking about? And of course, who do you think those 8 million are? Most of them are people who can't live in places that have better air quality or they have jobs that require them to be outside in poor air quality. So it's the poorest and most vulnerable again who are getting hit by that. Yeah, that's, you know, that's such a great point, like sort of bringing it back to the, the faith side of things as mm -hmm. thinking of this about as Christians, like, you know, it's like the climate change is one thing, but then just the pollution side of it is another and, so, and sort of how we think about caring for our neighbor and loving others and what we can do um, in that regard. So there's, there's really a lot of facets to this. Um, when it comes to the faith side of things, so what really got me thinking about this is I started reading a book that sort of said, um, there's a point in college specifically when a lot of younger Christians will start to question their faith or you know, they'll get into these departments and people will, you know, basically write them off like, oh, you believe in 
religion or whatever. Um, why, why do you think that is? And how can that sort of be reconciled? Well, I, I don't think I've read this book, but I've also listened to a lot of talks and read a lot of articles that say sort of the same thing. So um, everybody from Lifeway, for example, that does surveys to other people who are concerned about the future of the church, they've been noticing how a lot of younger people are leaving the church. And when you ask them why, a lot of them cite the fact that when they get to university, mm -hmm. they understand, they learn that they've been lied to by people they trust. Yes, that's exactly the same thing I read. Yes. So I was at a talk a few years ago by Philip Yancey, who of course is a popular Christian author. Many people have probably read his books. I've read most of them, I think. And Philip Yancey shared something really interesting. He was speaking to a group of scientists who are Christians. And he said that he grew up in the South and he was taught by his church, in his church, by people he trusted, that Black people were mentally inferior. He was taught that. And then he went to university. I think he said he went to Emory or something like that, a good university. And he got an internship. He was interested then in being a medical doctor. He got an internship at the CDC with one of their top doctors who was black. And he said at that moment, he realized that he had been lied to because here he was incredibly honored at having an internship with this top expert in the field who was recognized by everyone as being incredibly smart and incredibly capable and incredibly successful. And he looks back at the church he grew up in and they had told him that that was not possible. And so then naturally you would say, well, what else have they told me that isn't true? And so that leads to a crisis of faith from so many young people. And so what happens is it's a vicious cycle because the parents and the church and the youth group and the pastors or whoever it is, they blame the educational system. They say, oh, sending kids to, you know, a secular school or sending kids to university, that's the problem. No, the problem is not learning the truth about God's creation, the problem is that in the church, and this is a uniquely American problem, it is certainly spreading beyond American boundaries, but it started right here. So we have to own it. And we have to take responsibility for this. A uniquely American problem is the idea that somehow God's creation is in conflict with God's written word. And mm -hmm. we have to realize that the problem begins with teaching children to distrust what God's creation is telling us. Mm, okay. So that of course is, you know, the, the very place where people struggle is Adam and Eve, of course. And so what do you say to that? What is the answer? Because I feel like I hear that more than anything. That's true. Well, that's why BioLogos, as, as you mentioned, is such a great organization because they have top experts. Francis Collins, for example, who's the head of the National Institutes of Health, a very respected figure, who came to a belief from God. He was an atheist and he came to a belief in God through studying DNA hmm. and genetics. I mean, that does that not just blow your mind? Is that, and it makes sense though, right? Because studying God's creation brought him to faith. And mm -hmm. I've actually read accounts from evolutionary biologists who found that studying evolution brought them to faith in God, as opposed to what we so often hear from people is that it drives people away. So mm -hmm. uh, what I say to people though, as a climate scientist is who studies something that's very urgent that if we don't fix it very quickly, it will mean the end of civilization as we know it with the poorest and most vulnerable people suffering the most first. What I say to people is this, I say to agree that digging up and burning coal and gas and oil is wrapping an extra blanket around the planet, causing the planet to run a fever and loading our weather dice against us. To agree on that, we don't have to agree that the world is any more than 300 years old. And as far as I know, we all agree on that. 
<laughs> so yeah. let's just fix climate change together, all of us, and then we can go back and spend a lot more time digging into the issues that BioLogos represents so well. And I have to say, they have a fantastic homeschooling curriculum too, which oh. is just outstanding. If anybody's interested in that, check out the BioLogos um, curriculum. You can use it in Christian schools and you can use it for homeschooling too. But then we can go back and we can start to unlearn many of the things that we have learned very recently. The mm -hmm. whole idea that the world is young was uh, pop was created by a Seventh Day Adventist in the late 1800s, and it was popular. Yeah, Seventh Day Adventist, <laughs> and it was popularized by two um, by two people in the 1950s. So that's how that's old crazy. the whole young Earth thing is. And yeah. and then the whole the whole evolution thing when it first came out, it was actually espoused and promoted by many theologically conservative leaders. And it wasn't until the, the former Secretary of State, who was concerned about the godlessness and atheism spreading through Russia at that time and the communist threat in the early 1900s, it wasn't until a politician got concerned about the link between atheism and evolution, which led to the Scopes trial. And um, Mark Knoll's classic book, The Scandal of the Evangelical Mind, explains all of this very clearly. It wasn't until then that religion even got into the picture as being opposed to science. So all of this religion, faith, science thing being in opposition, it doesn't really go back to Galileo. Galileo was a political issue. <laughs> it was not a religion science issue. It really dates back to the late 1800s in the United States of America. Yeah, I mean, from from what I've read too, many of the most famous scientists were Christians or believers uh, in God in some way. And so um, these contradictions, you're right, they don't seem to have appeared until much more recently, which the 1800s in the span of history is very recently. So, um, so that makes a lot of sense. Um, you, let's see here, I lost track of my questions, but um, okay, oh, yeah, see, so oh, go if ahead. If you don't mind, if you don't yeah, mind. Sure. Um, I have a colleague named Elaine Eklund, uh, who is a sociologist, which means she studies people. And she was at church a number of years ago. She went to Presbyterian church. And you know, when you, when you shake hands with people and you sort of chit chat, the lady in front of her in the course of conversation said, oh, you know, those scientists, they're all godless liberal atheists. And so Elaine being a sociologist thought, I wonder if that's true. So she has gone and she has surveyed I think something like 1700 top research scientists across the whole US today. So not back in the historical times, but today. And what she found is that 70% of us would view ourselves as spiritual people. In other words, we think there's more to life than what science can observe and measure and discern. 50% of us would, would um, ascribe a specific religious label to ourselves. And most of us would be Christian. You know, Some would be Hindu, some would be Jewish, some would be Muslim but 50% would say I am a blank and 70% would say there's more than what science can describe. And here's the really fascinating thing. Out of the 30% who said they were atheists, 20% insisted that they were spiritual atheists. <laughs> and so Elaine's just like, well, what does that mean? So she's written a really cool book called Why Science and Faith Need Each Other. And I feel like Elaine oh, would be a great person for you to talk to in the future. Yeah, I like the sound of that title. Well, um, yeah, it's so interesting the way the word spiritual is used just because, you know, in studying some of the research on religious nuns these days, you know, everybody, nobody wants to let go of the label spiritual, but the, that's because we are, everyone is a spiritual being, of course, um, we are not just human bodies, <laughs> we're human souls. And so that makes a lot of sense. And I think sometimes 
the headlines, the shocking headlines, like you're talking about, they really sort of uh, mull over the actual truth of what's going on. Most scientists are not atheists, okay? Um, yet a lot of people might think that. And so it's really interesting how that gets, uh, how that gets reported. Now you use, I, I watched your Ted talk this morning and um, you said in the Ted talk, you talked about how partisan this stuff is, that it's not necessarily based on facts and reality. It's based on politics. What, how have you seen that recently? And has it gotten worse? I'm, I hate to ask. <laughs> Well, uh, yes, unfortunately it has. But since over the last 10 years or so, climate change has consistently been at the top of the most politically polarized issues in the whole US, where they rank issues based on how far apart Republicans and Democrats are. Climate change is nearly always right there at the top. In fact, according to the last survey from the Pew Foundation, they found that the third most politically polarized issue in the whole country was coronavirus. Mm. And unfortunately, we've gotten to the point now where the number one predictor of whether somebody says they're going to get vaccinated or not when they're eligible is where they fall in the political spectrum, which just blows your mind. Mm -hmm. Then number two was race and racial inequality. And then number one was climate change. Do you think that, I mean, specifically recently with like the Green New Deal and things like that, do you think like those kinds of policies are sort of pushing the partisanship just because the Green New Deal has a lot of... A lot going on in it um, and there's a lot of people that feel like that's maybe overreach when there could be more of a compromising issue or a compromising policy sorry well well what's been happening is the united states has become more and more and more politically polarized over time and there's a bunch of different factors that play into that um, but the result is that we now have what they call negative partisanship so people don't vote based on which party they like they vote with, based on which party they hate. Ugh. And studies are now showing that people view people who vote for the other party, and this goes both ways, not just one way, both ways. They view people who vote for the other party as enemies, mm -hmm. and in some cases as not even human. So climate change is just one of this whole toxic stew of issues that falls into this political polarization. And it is very rare for me to get hate mail and attacks on social media, which happen every day, I'm sorry to say. It's very rare for me to get that from someone who doesn't also have other positions consistent with that same toxic stew. Mm. Um, like, you know, they don't like women, they don't like immigrants, um, you know, they, they don't like, obviously, they, they don't like the other political party. Mm. And starting to spill beyond the US borders too. So here we've got the Green New Deal, for example. This episode is brought to you in part by Beyond Ordinary Women Ministries, which prepares Christian women for leadership. At Bow, we believe that every woman is a leader because she influences someone. So whom do you influence? Do you mentor a woman, serve in the workplace, or do you lead a small group, teach the Bible, or even lead an entire ministry? No matter who or how many you influence, our free online resources will help equip you. Our videos, podcast episodes, and articles from experienced women leaders will encourage you and perfect your leadership skills. They offer wisdom for dealing with ministry pitfalls, current biblical issues, health for your own soul, and insights for shepherding others well. In addition, 
Bow offers Bible studies designed to connect women of multiple generations. They provide a challenge to both women new to the Bible and those wanting to dig deeper. Be our guest and browse all of our free resources and low-cost Bible studies at beyondordinarywomen.org. And when it was first proposed, it was proposed by a white man and a woman of color. First of all, let's just be clear on that. It was proposed by two people, not one. One was a white man, one was a woman of color. Who's the person who gets all the flack? The woman of color, of course. Why? Because sexism and racism is part of this toxic stew. So let's just start with that, first of all. For every article you see on, on the woman, you'd have to, you know, there would be for every article you see, sorry about the man, there would be like, you know, 50 to 100 articles. Yeah, I actually don't even know who the man is. Who is it? Um, it is. That's true. I was just Googling it to make sure that I had um, I had it there. Let's just the woman is um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez for people listening that yes, don't know. Exactly. I feel like it was. Yes, it was Edward Markey. That's what I thought. Oh, so that's okay. Democrat yeah. from yeah. Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. um, and I was just checking myself to be sure yeah. before I said that. And so here you go. So even I had to check to make sure. And you were like, well, who was that man? And everybody else yeah. was who was it? Nobody's talking about him, how radical and socialist he is. Are they? No. Here's the really interesting other thing, though. Um, let me just look it up so I make sure I have the same statistics here. When, when this resolution was first proposed in um, December 2018, 57% of conservative Republicans supported it. 75% of moderate Republicans supported it. Why? The Green New Deal? The Green New yes. Why? Because if you actually just read it, it says we need jobs, we need to fix the economy, we need to grow the economy. Um, you know, China's way ahead of the US in new clean energy technology. So isn't there a way where we could actually accelerate the transition to clean energy while also providing jobs and growing the economy? So if you just read what it actually says, you have again, 57% of conservative Republicans and 75% of moderate Republicans support it, which is, yeah, you're like, what? How did I I'm shocked that? by that. Yeah. <laughs> well, so then, then they surveyed people in April, four months later. What happened? Those numbers almost halved for conservative Republicans. Messaging. 57% to 32%. And then they went from 75 to 64 for moderate. The Green New Deal didn't change. All that changed was that the conservative outlets and the conservative politicians were panning it. So where does our opinion come from? Obviously, it doesn't come from the actual content of the Green New Deal. It comes from what people we respect are saying about it. Mm -hmm. hmm. Interesting. Um, hold on. Let me. Yeah. So. So what? OK, so on that note, then, where do you think the most the best place to get accurate information is? Where would you recommend people get information? That is a great question. I try to provide a lot of sources of accurate information on my website. And I also try to do so on my social media feeds, because what I would say is the place not to get accurate information is unfortunately from the news media, because mm -hmm. the news media all has an angle. And I'm Canadian. And so in Canada, we have a national news network called CBC, Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. And then they have one in Australia called ABC. And they have one in Britain called BBC. And they're actually <laughs> legally bound to only report the facts. 
So if you want only the facts from a news organization, you could go to BBC, CBC, or ABC, and that is what you will get. But in the United States, all of our news organizations are based on profit. And so they're all about sort of pitching their angle, whichever angle it is. Now, there's some really helpful graphics that show you that, you know, AP, Associated Press and Reuters, they're pretty much in the middle. They're very factual, too. Um, but then there's a lot of there on the left side and a lot on the right side that are all about expressing opinions rather than facts. So a lot of what I do is try to provide sources for people. So if they want to know, is the planet warming? Are humans responsible? Are the impacts serious? What can I as an individual do about it? That they're able to find those answers. We have a YouTube series called Global Weirding. Um, I worked for the US National Climate Assessment for many years. Um, there, there's all kinds of great websites, including one called Skeptical Science that was created by a fellow Christian named John Cook that has all the science answers to the questions people have. And BioLogos is part of this too. They make sure that everything they present is scientifically sound and referenced. You can find where it comes from. If you're not sure about the validity of anything, you can go and you can fact check it yourself. They're not just giving you an opinion. They're saying, this is what hundreds or even thousands of scientists have concluded from studying God's creation. And we need, I feel like we need more awareness of these sources so that we don't just get everything we believe from our favorite news program. Yeah, I always say, I always tell people, if you want something that's unbiased to listen to the BBC, yeah. <laughs> that's that's right. a good, good option. Okay, so I want to ask you about... Um, you know, despite the fact that conservative outlets, you know, report a certain way about the Green New Deal, there is like a, a, a growing faction of conservatives and Republicans that are um, much more concerned about the environment and are, are there's organizations forming. And so are you seeing that positive move like in your sort of on your radar? And, and do you think it's been helpful? Yes, I definitely am seeing this. Uh, and there's a strong age gradient. Yes, which yes. takes us right back to what we were talking about at the beginning. Mm. When you look at young people who identify as evangelical or Christian or just Republican or conservative, most of them are very concerned about issues like climate change and jobs and the economy and clean energy and new technology. It's older people, the older we get, the more we're dragging our heels at the back and I think that really relates to the fact that a lot of this division is coming from fear, fear of change. The world is changing too quickly. It feels out of control. Many people feel like they're being pushed to the back of the line. And so out of fear, we are reacting. That's where all of this anger comes from because there's a lot of anger around, it feels like. But anger is a secondary emotion. Fear is the primary emotion. When you feel threatened, you react with anger. And that, I think, brings us right back to our faith as well, because one of my favorite verses is in Timothy, where Paul's writing to Timothy, and he says, God has not given you a spirit of fear. So if we feel fear, or if we hear fear-based messages, which we hear all the time as Christians, we're inundated with fear-based messages. I hear Christians saying, don't take the vaccine because it's a tracking device that's the mark of the beast. That's fear. Or don't take the vaccine because it'll change your DNA and God won't let you into heaven. That's fear. Or, you know, I haven't heard that one, but oh, it's I've heard it several times. I believe you. My husband's a pastor, so maybe, maybe that's why he hears it all. Yes, he does. Um, so, and when it comes to climate change, we hear a lot of fear-based messaging too. Like they want to, you know, they want to stop us from driving our cars or they want to change the way we've been getting our energy for the last 200 years or they want to 
you know, destroy the economy or let the United Nations or the Antichrist take over the world. So this is a litmus test. And I want to just say, if you hear a fear-based message, God has given us a litmus test, a litmus test that, you know, that little piece of paper you stick in a, in a liquid and it turns blue if it's acidic. Mm -hmm. God has given us a litmus test. If there's fear involved, it is not from him. Yes, and we know so that if it's not from him, <laughs> then who is it from? Yes. So, so what has God given us then? God has given us, the verse goes on to say, he has given us a spirit of power. And that sounds a little bit old fashioned, but the way we talk about power today is being empowered, which means able to act. And what fear normally does is it paralyzes us, right? We want to keep everything the same. We just want to freeze everything and we want to freeze too. That's what fear does. Whereas if we have a spirit of power, it means we're able to act and we're able to change things. Mm -hmm. We have a spirit of love, which means we can think of others and consider others, not just ourselves and our own needs. And I love the last one. He said, God has also given you a sound mind to make good decisions <laughs> based on the information that he gives you and the brain that he's given you. So given that, that ability to act, to love and have compassion on others and to use our sound mind, that is what God has given us as Christians to make good decisions in this world that's just full of fear, full of political polarization, full of news media feeding us fear. I actually did an experiment the other day when I was talking about fear to people. Um, I went to uh, CNN and I just looked at the top 35 headlines. And of the top 35 headlines, there was not a single one that was positive. Mm -hmm. they were, there was a few that were neutral, but most of them were designed to frustrate you to anger you, to uh, make you fearful or afraid or anxious. And I mean, I say CNN, but if I had gone to Fox News, I would have seen the same thing. If yeah. I had gone to MSNBC, I would have seen the same thing. It's because fear sells. And so we are so bombarded with fear on a regular basis. I don't think we even realize how much that's happening. But as Christians, I think we are actually called to step back, to detach ourselves from that fear and to recognize that that fear is not coming from God. And when we react out of fear, we are not reacting out of who God has made us. We're reacting out of our old flesh patterns, our old operating system, our old heart, even though we've been given that new heart and we've been called to continually be renewing our minds to be consistent with who God has already made us. Yes, that's so good. That's so good. Thank you. Um, so just, a, just like two more questions. You have time for two more questions? Oh, we have a whole hour. Go oh, ahead. okay, great. I just wanted to make sure I wasn't keeping you. Um, okay, so first question is when it comes to the church, what can the church do better on this? Um, we need more Christians involved um, in like, you know, call it earth care or environmental um, causes. And where do you see the church possibly going wrong right now? Ooh, you said this is just a little question. We <laughs> could talk about this for an hour. <laughs> well, the high points are the low points. <laughs> okay. Well, so I'm going to go back and um, start with where I left off uh, sharing about my friend and colleague Elaine Eklund's work studying scientists, where she discovered that, you know, 70% of us are spiritual people and 50% of us have a religious label. So she herself being a Presbyterian, then she wanted to dig a little bit deeper into the ones who are Christians. And so she surveyed the ones who said they were Christians to see what type of church they went to. And what she found is that most of them went to more mainline churches and less of them went to evangelical churches like Baptist or E-Free or non-denominational like the one I go to or Pentecostal. And so when she asked scientists why not or what, you know, why they go to that type of church, 
The answers she got were absolutely heartbreaking. They were not surprising, but they were heartbreaking. And scientists said consistently they did not feel welcome. Hmm. They felt like they had, they couldn't be their whole selves. They couldn't share with people who they were or what they did. When they said they were a scientist, they were treated, you know, differently and negatively and sort of viewed with a bit of suspicion. Like, how do we know you're not one of those godless liberal atheists? <laughs> Just sort of like you're at church, <laughs> you know, a wolf and sheep. And you want to be there. Yeah. Oh, right. that is awful. I haven't heard that. Yes. So something that scientists can do or something that churches can do, and there's actually great programs. There's the Templeton Foundation. There's the, the American Association for the Advancement of Science has this program called the Dialogue on Science, Ethics, and Religion. That's a big mouthful. But it's led by Jennifer Wiseman, who is an astrophysicist who is actually in charge of the Hubble Space Telescope Program and is also a wonderful Christian herself. And they have had a program for a number of years called Scientists and Congregations, where they, mm. um, where they bring scientists into congregations and they bring pastors and ministers into science labs to sort of you know, do a little, little switch. So there's a lot of programs where you could look for a scientist and you might even have one in your congregation, but you could look for a scientist who is a Christian to bring into your church, to just sit down and have a dialogue with. Maybe they could teach an adult Bible study class. Maybe you could just have like an open event on a Saturday night where the pastor interviewed them, hear their testimony, have them share about why they became a scientist. Nine times out of 10 or even more, the reason a scientist is a scientist, who's a Christian, is because they're a Christian, not despite the fact that they're a Christian. In fact, I am a climate scientist because I'm a Christian, because when I heard that climate change affects the least of these, and I truly believe that we as Christians are to care for and love the least of these, I felt compelled, not by my head, but by my heart, to do everything I could to help with this problem. So get to know a scientist, bring a scientist into your congregation, have them speak to your youth group and your kids, um, hear about, how they think about their science, what they've learned about God through studying their science, that is the most tangible, effective, and simple thing that any church can do. And I can tell you, it will make a difference. I have heard from young people, and I've heard from adults too, who have said, I remember when we had a scientist in our church, and they shared how studying science was studying God's creation, and it stuck with me through the years, and it has shaped the way that I think about my science and my faith, and in many ways, it actually helps to inoculate younger people against the fact that they're taught that science is bad, then they get to university, and many great campus groups like InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, which I attended myself, or um, Crew, or um, you know, Baptist Student Union or all of these different groups, they have science students, they talk about science, they have professors come in who study science. So, so if we understand that it's part of our faith, that it's consistent and compatible with who we are, then when kids get to university, they're much more likely not to think of it as something that's inconsistent, but to think of it as something that, hey, I have an opportunity to learn more now. And maybe I could connect with people who view science and faith as compatible. And I, I think it'd be a really good thing to do and not that hard. Yeah, I agree. That's really great. So I think I sort of asked this before, but I just want to make sure I'm like, I, I'm not sure if I asked it right. So let me ask again. Sure. Um, so when it comes to the Bible and people that are having conflicts about what they've learned um, about creation and, you know, evolution and things like that, there are people that say, well, I can't believe in, you know, the God of the Bible, because that means I have to believe in creationism. And I guess what is, what is your answer to someone 
that is, is really struggling with, I feel like people just really struggle with this, the evolution versus creationism or intelligent design. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and personally for me, like, I don't even like, I'm just like, whatever it was, I'm good with, <laughs> you know, that's kind of how I am, but a lot of people really, really struggle with it. And so I guess, what, what do you say to them? Well, we are unfortunately being taught today, a new American version of the 10 commandments. Okay. We are being taught that to be a Christian, thou must always believe in things that are pretty new, like the concept of a young earth and evolution being conflict with Christianity. Those things are about a hundred years old. So we must believe that the earth is young, that God was not able to work through and design evolution. Thou must also vote Republican. Thou must reject climate science and climate scientists. Thou must also view most science with a pretty skeptical eye. <laughs> Thou shalt seriously consider homeschooling. <laughs> and, and again, I'm not saying, you know, I'm not saying that's necessarily bad, but I'm just saying that we've been taught this new set of 10 commandments of what makes up a good Christian. And if you go back to the New Testament, what are Christians? Jesus said, people should know you by your love for others. You should be recognized not for arguing with people, not for judging people, not for being dogmatic or rejecting people. You should be known for loving other people. That's what you should be known for. And in fact, Jesus said that the greatest commandment is to love, love your, your uh, Lord, your God with all your heart, soul, and mind and love your neighbor as yourself. Those are our commandments. And so I just feel like we have lost our way into this cultural morass mm -hmm, mm -hmm. of things that we're told we should do to be a good Christian. And we're like, um, the book of James talks about, he says, you're like the man who looked at himself in the mirror and then went away and forgot who he is. That's who we are. So really the ultimate answer, and I'm glad that you re-asked this because I think it's important to get here. The ultimate answer is to go back to the Bible, go back to what we believe instead of taking what news commentators or politicians say as gospel, let's actually take the gospel as gospel. Let's study God's word. Let's immerse yourself in God's word. Let's actually remind ourselves on a daily basis of who God has made us, hold up that mirror and look at who we are and then act accordingly. Look at what the fruits of the spirit are and recognize that God has actually given us the ability to provide those fruits. When you, when you go to a peach tree, you don't hear a lot of grunting and groaning as the peach tree tries to force the fruit out. God has created the peach tree such as it can naturally produce peaches as long as it's not prevented from doing so right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So we need to be who God has created us rather than that mold that our cultural Christianity has sort of forced us into. And I think that really cuts across all denominations because when we look at Catholics in this country, we see the same political polarization in Catholicism as we do in Protestants. We see it across race. We see it across gender. Um, we see it across, um, you know, I was speaking recently with people from the Orthodox Church. They see it too in the Orthodox Church. And the reality is every single one of us, we've forgotten who we are. But fortunately for us, we have the Bible, God's written word, and we also have creation or nature, God's express word. And those remain unchanged by time, by culture. And so in many ways, I do feel like, you know, by studying science, I've learned more about God and I really appreciate the opportunity to do so. And I, I just am so thankful for the sound mind that God has given us that we can do that. And for the abilities that we've developed over time, including, like I said, more powerful telescopes to see the universe and an understanding of how back two, 300 years ago, we didn't know that digging up and burning fossil fuels 
would be heating the planet. But now we know that thanks to the sound mind that God gave us, including many scientists who are Christians who study this. So that means we can make different choices today that will help all of us, that will reduce air pollution, that will save lives, that will clean up our water, that will grow jobs, that will grow the economy, that will um, increase our ability to use God's gift of the sun and the wind that he's given us, and that will help us continue to provide energy to people in poor countries who really need it. Thank you so much, Catherine. I have loved this conversation. I feel like I've learned a lot and I need to like listen to it again and, di and digest it all. Um, but I really appreciate your time and all the work that you're doing. I think it's so important. And this is sort of a newer passion for me, but I'm really excited about it. And it's really great to be connected with you and your work. And I wanna put all those resources out there for people that are listening as well. So thank you so much for your time. Well, thank you so much for having me. And if I could just leave people with one last word, it would be this. We often feel, or we're even told, that to care about the health of this planet, to care about every living thing on this planet, as it says in Genesis 1, to care about the least of these, the poorest among us, we feel like we have to be a certain type of person. We have to vote a certain way. We have to care about certain things. And we feel like, well, that's just not who I am. But the reality is, it is who we are. As Christians, God has made us people who are responsible for every living thing, who just as God does, we have a heart that cares about the most seemingly insignificant aspects of nature and creation. We have a heart that desires to love and care for our sisters and our brothers right here as well as around the world. And if we really take the Bible seriously, and if we really believe what it says, we would be out at the front of the line demanding climate action. And the good news is there's a lot of Christians who are. There's over 20,000 young evangelicals for climate action. There's the yes. Evangelical Environmental Network. There's the EEN Moms Group for Moms. Ooh, I should check that one out. <laughs> oh yeah, definitely you should. I'm part of another group called Science Moms that, that's um, about moms in general. You don't have to be a Christian who care about climate change for their kids. There's the Catholic Climate Covenant. There's the Episcopal Church. Um, there's the Pope's encyclical, of course, that was all about climate change. There's a great book called Caring for Creation, an Evangelical's Guide to Climate Change that was written by a pastor and a, and a meteorologist together. There's, you're not alone. We're not alone. There are Christians who take the Bible seriously and who recognize that caring about climate change isn't in conflict with who we are. It's consistent with who we are. And in fact, it's even a more genuine expression of who we are and who God has made us. Amen. I am, I am hearing that so much. All right. Well, I, um, I, I know you're probably on a lot of podcasts, but I will sure send you this one when it's out. And um, thank you so much again for your time and your wisdom. Thank you so much. And I will definitely look for that link and I'll be sharing it because I want people to listen. <laughs> thank you. And I'm so glad that you're talking about this. So many people are not. And as you know, from my Ted talk, actually, I believe the most important thing that anybody can do about climate change is talk about it because we're yes. not. Yes. So you are doing the single most important thing here. And I hope that everybody listening will come away with some interesting things they never knew before that will help them have conversations too. All right. Thank you so much. Have a good one. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. This episode was brought to you in part 
by The Table Podcast at Dallas Theological Seminary. Listen to rotating hosts discuss issues of God and culture to demonstrate theology's relevance in everyday life. Find it on your podcast app. For videos and more, visit dts.edu podcast.